Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you haven't heard, I have another crypto podcast called Unconfirmed. It's shorter, newsier, and comes out Fridays. If you haven't yet, go subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find out what I think are the top stories in crypto by signing up for my weekly newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Are you passionate about blockchain but fall short on the technical skills to build and deploy blockchain applications? Then check out SimbaChain, the smart contract as a service blockchain simplification layer on simbachain.com and their new enterprise offering on the Microsoft Azure Marketplace. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. My guests today are Sebastian Sontag, the new CEO of Local Bitcoins, and Mika Impola, software developer at Local Bitcoins. Welcome, Sebastian and Mika. Hello. Nice to see you, Laura. Most listeners have probably heard of Local Bitcoins, but they may not be fully aware of what it does or how it works. Sebastian, can you describe Local Bitcoins? Yeah. So Local Bitcoins, in a sense, of course, it's a place where people can trade with Bitcoin. So they can buy and they can sell Bitcoins. But the Local Bitcoins in core is that it's from people to people. And of course, it's a bit different than exchange. So our idea is that it's, it's a bit similar to Craigslist, but especially the U.S. users probably know pretty well. So it's kind of a place for Bitcoin people to meet and create an advertisement that I want to buy Bitcoin, I want to sell Bitcoin. But that is basically what the local Bitcoins is about. And Mika, can you walk me through one example of how a buyer and a seller transact on the platform? Yes, so uh, the buyer... Uh Let's say that uh, I want to buy Bitcoins and so I go to the local Bitcoin site and create create the account to our service and and with that account I get this uh, Bitcoin wallet as part of it, this account. And uh, with this Bitcoin wallet I can transfer Bitcoins in and out. So uh, after that I I can search for, for advertisements on, on localbitcoins.com and and when I found uh, find a suitable advertisement, let's say for example that I want to use uh, Swift to settle the payment for the bitcoins, so I will search for for uh, advertisements that uh, advertise uh, selling of the bitcoins with uh, Swift payment. 
So after I I have found a suitable ad- advertisement from the site, I will I will start to trade by by replying to that advert advertisement and and what happens then is is that uh, the amount of uh, bitcoins that I am about to buy will go to our escrow wallet and then uh, well let's as we are now doing the payment as uh, with the swift i will i will uh, make the transfer to to the seller of the bitcoins uh, using the swift uh, network and and once we both me as a buyer and uh, the seller of the bitcoins agree that the swift payment is is uh, done uh, we both uh, mark the payment and the trade has done and and at that point the uh, point the local bitcoins.com service escrow wallet releases the bitcoins to me to my local bitcoins account wallet where i can then withdraw them if needed and so you named swift as one example of ways in which buyers can pay but what are um and I was going to say, what are all the ways in which buyers can can pay? But obviously, you don't need to list every single one, but just give some examples of the full range. Yeah, well, Swift, uh, Kiwi, Alipay, and Pesa. It really doesn't matter what is the uh, like settlement type. I mean, if if uh, users have some. Uh, unknown or new uh, payment method in the in in their local area they can also agree to use that one so we don't uh, in a sense limit so uh, limit the the other part of the trade so it's just whatever the the seller is willing to accept yeah well mostly of course there are some aspects there, which we are limiting there because of the safety of the users and so on. But uh, it's pretty much open for the users to decide that how they exchange the other currency, not the Bitcoin, but the other currency. And what would be an example of a way that's unsafe to pay with? Yeah, so the cash trades was actually disabled during the spring. And there was actually kind of a lot of news, especially from our competitors, uh, noticing that we have removed the cash trades from them. There were actually small discussion in the company if we should keep it and how people will see it. But then again, it was very limited how many people were still using it. So we really didn't see that it as important anymore. But it was also that there are problems with the cash trace because when you are using escrow service, the whole idea is that you don't completely trust the other party. If you would trust completely the other party, then you don't need the escrow service. You can transfer bitcoins directly wallet to wallet. But when you need the escrow service, there is not complete trust between the parties. And of course, if you have to meet the person face to face to trade the cash, it's a really problem with this safety issue, but then it's also really hard for to prove that the cash has been traded. What if the other party says that I did transfer the cash? The other party says, no, it did not happen. So there is really hard way to prove these kind of cases. So essentially it was kind of because 
it would be like difficult to resolve disputes that that was kind of removed as one of the options? Yeah, that was actually one of the reasons. There was also regulation push. It was not really happening, the regulation during that time, but we the main reason was that it was the safety and the dispute. It did cause us costs, but then again, kind of the benefits and use was very limited. Actually, Mika has some numbers also related to how popular the cash was. Mika, what percentage of uh, transactions were cash trades? When we eventually decided to to uh, stop supporting cash trades on our platform, the amount of revenue that was generated from, from the cash trades was uh, less than half percent of the company's re- revenue. So so it, it, it was just this uh, really small branch that uh, we kind of like decided to cut down. I mean, there is no justification for the overhead of, of the service. So, so. And was it more popular, though, in certain geographies? Like in a particular country, for instance, might it be, you know, I don't know, like 20% of the transactions there? even if it was only half a percent of your revenue overall? Uh, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a clear market area or, or anything like that where it was uh, used more than in the other places. It was more like uh, uh, where we had uh, users anyway. There were always a couple of, of cash traders also there. So it, 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 there was, it wasn't uh, like – it was quite – steadily spread amongst the markets. Okay. We were like uh, present. But, uh, you know, these, these gas trades in, in all, uh, it's, it's really confusing topic to me. I mean, uh, when I'm, I, I'm out there in the wide encountering other Bitcoiners and, and they learn, learn that I work for the local Bitcoins, we, we usually start talking about local Bitcoins. And many times they talk about this thing that people meet in some places and they exchange gas for Bitcoins. And, and that's really like uh, confusing for me because I, I don't see local Bitcoins doing that uh, that I, I mean I mean we haven't do that is not what local Bitcoin does well it's it's not completely true yeah yes you can do do also that uh, but uh, people who does that is so small percentage of our users users uh, that you could also think of it as non-existing uh, but I, I, I do understand where this all is coming from. I mean, in the summer of 2013, the majority of our traders were cash traders, but already in the end of the 2013, cash traders were only one third of the customer base. And when we come to the year 2016, the number of cash traders was like less than 5% of, of our users. So... We might be considered uh, as platform where, where gas trades were done long time ago, but, but I mean, well, long time ago. In, in a Bitcoin world, three years is a very long time, I think. <laughs> that is definitely true. But, but I mean, there, there comes time to every company to like streamline the business and, and concentrate to the core of the business and 
And when you have something that is used like or is generating less than a half percent of the company revenue and you are in this streamlining mode, those things just like get cut off. Yeah, I also vote for that because, of course, the company mission is to bring Bitcoin to every city of the world or allow everybody on the planet to trade with Bitcoin. So in that picture, the cash trades is not important. It's the other matters that really matters. Yeah, I mean, I think probably some of the anger that you kind of experience from some of the users or some Bitcoiners about this is that I think there are people who view your service as somewhat political, um, at least in concept, the idea of allowing people to to trade peer to peer typically means, you know, more anonymously and under cer- certain jurisdictions where perhaps people don't have very much financial freedom, that could be a very, very important service. And so, um, you know, for them, I think that they view this as like an important kind of, um, it's almost like for them a, a political stance or, or something, but in a way, maybe I, I feel like the, uh, the passion that they feel about that is sort of similar to um, just in general, where you notice in politics that there tends to be some people who feel passionately about one thing. And then the majority of the population, unfortunately doesn't, even if it's kind of a worthy uh, stance. And so, um, yeah, so I I think that's what I'm hearing. uh, You know, when you talk about the disconnect between what your users are saying and then how you see things from the business perspective mm. and also the of course what we have noticed is that the, it might be that in developing countries what are kind of the core things that people are needing there in in case of bitcoin is a bit different than in western world so for example the cash trades i understand is that there is the idealistic way of viewing it but if you are in developing countries and you kind of want to, for example, save money and save it from the inflation, I don't know if they consider cash option or not. It's more important that there is the option to kind of save yourself from the hyperinflation, for example. But that's actually why I was asking about whether or not cash trades were more popular in certain geographies, because in some of the developing countries, are there a kind of like... um are there enough options for payments for people? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like in certain geographies, is it the case where cash is one of the main ways that people transact? And if so, you know, is that kind of preventing people in that country from getting access to Bitcoin? Yeah, that is actually a really interesting question. Of course, like I said, that the, and actually Mika mentioned that, of course, we based our decision on data and we were looking that it's going down. And even though there were more people from everywhere in the world coming inside, they were using less cash trades. But that is really interesting because, of course, there might be that there is huge market out there who are only able to use cash trades. And that is, I, I really feel that is really important because if there is that kind of user group, there should be a Bitcoin service 
for them as well. Yeah, I would like to. I, I would like to argue that that if we if we consider those countries which are experiencing hyperinflation, uh, they don't like to use cash because you have to use so big piles of cash. It's easier to use some kind of uh, bank transfer or mobile money. And also, what we see in the, in the developing countries is that they are they are in many ways leapfrogging uh, uh, to uh, to mobile money and and mobile uh, minutes and all, all, all these these uh, apps that you can use on your phone phone from your phone and and uh, people are actually using uh, those kind of payments methods instead of cash yeah that makes sense yeah but this is a really interesting topic and of course if i understood correctly there is of the un is making research on this but of course there is an this kind of societies and research organization also researching because I have to admit that the, me or the company, of course, we are not really the specialist to understand that the, how in developing countries people are behaving. So, of course, if we would understand a bit better how they are using Bitcoin and how they kind of wish to use the Bitcoin in the future, of course, that is also our vision that we could give them a service. But it's really hard of course, to really know how people in different markets and different areas are using. Yeah, and I actually think one other kind of um, difficulty in trying to do this research is that I imagine when people are not under duress, that then, of course, they're happy to use these different services. But if you look at what happened in Hong Kong recently with the protests there, mm. As you know, a lot of Hong Kongers were using cash to pay for their subway tickets to go to the protests rather than using any sort of payment method that could be identified back to them. Mm. And so, you know, these like you instead of just generally looking at, you know, like developing countries or something, it would need to be maybe more specific, like geographies that are undergoing some kind of political upheaval where they uh, don't feel comfortable transacting with their identities, something like that. So uh, I understand it. it would need to be something where you would need to be in kind of the right place at the right time to to get the full picture. Yeah, it's it's exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it, I, I think that is why you know some of there's some pushback on this because I think some people who like the idea of peer to peer trading of local Bitcoins then understand that if it's not offered uh, the cash transactions, then in times of duress, then people won't have that option. Um, so actually, let's just go back, though, to the very beginning of um, how local Bitcoins got founded. I think the the founder of the company, Jeremias, Jeremias uh, uh, saw the, or, or tried to, tried to, like, find ways to buy Bitcoin or sell Bitcoin and, and kind of like didn't find any good services. And so he, he decided to create this, uh, this uh, Craigslist type of place where you can advertise buying or selling. And, and thus the first version of the local Bitcoins was created. And it was really uh, like done in, in a few weeks or something like that. And, 
And in the beginning of, of, of local bitcoins, there was no way of uh, creating any revenue. And uh, it was maybe in half year after the beginning or one year after the beginning that the escrow service was in, introduced. And with the escrow service, the, the company was uh, able to generate the revenue as as we charge like 1% of the amount of escrowed bitcoins uh, during the trade. And basically that's, uh, that's the basis of, of the company that we still are running, providing the advertisement space and uh, providing the escrow as a service when, when uh, users are making the trade. And you charge that fee to the seller, right? Yes. Okay. And so are there any other services that you have begun to offer over time? Or um, is that really, you know, just kind of your bread and butter and, and that's the main way that local Bitcoins makes its revenue? Uh, there has been like uh, local Bitcoins ATMs at some point and, and we had this invoicing service at some point and Maybe maybe there are others that I am not that well aware of, but we we are kind of like being uh, focusing and streamlining and uh, to to the main product and trying to do it uh, as good as as we can. And how has usage and reach of your platform changed over time? Yeah, so yeah, we did actually if we check the volume so how much there is transaction ongoing on the platform. And this is probably really interesting for the listeners as well. So there are public sources where you can compare different exchanges and trading points and services like local bitcoins, coin dance. And there we can see that, of course, uh, uh, before 2017, the market was much smaller, but it was growing steadily. And of course, 2017, the growth was insane during that year. But the interesting part, at least to my eye, is that, uh, of course, there was the price surge. It ended like, was it $17,000 per Bitcoin? Then it did drop down. But the volume uh, of local Bitcoins has been, it has remained pretty much the same as average of 2017. And that is insane. And Mika actually noticed something really interesting about if the Bitcoin price remains. So if Mika, you can share it. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I think that we have this uh, steady growth. We have had this steady growth uh, from the beginning of, of the company and it just seems to be growing and growing and but one one thing that affects uh, the the um, the speed of the growth is that if the bitcoin price is moving we we seem to have more growth so when the bitcoin price is going down we have a little bit more growth and when the bitcoin price is going up we have a, a lot more growth when the bitcoin price stays somewhat stable <laughs> Uh, we still have a growth, but it's it's not that uh, that uh, big when, when the price is actually moving a, a lot of. So 
basically, basically, you would you could say that that we are growing with the Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, uh, being kind of like an on ramp. You know, as the price grows, that reflects more people coming into the system. So, and, you know, obviously we've been talking about kind of the way the platform has changed over time. And Sebastian, so why did local Bitcoins change its CEO at this time? Previously, the CEOs were, you know, it was Jeremias, the founder, and then also I think Nicholas, I guess, is his brother. Yeah. And so you're kind of like the first a sort of outside CEO. So why did that change happen? Yeah, so the background story, Jeremias and Nikolaus, they founded the company. And Jeremias was uh, CEO until 2016 or 17, around that time. And since then, the CEO has been Nikolaus. And now, actually, already last year, Nikolaus has been talking that he's more interested, kind of the vision where the Bitcoin market is going, where Bitcoin is going. Of course, the company, it has really grown on huge one. It's not anymore kind of a startup mode. There are kind of a lot of position, a lot of human resource management and whatever. And Nicholas says that he's more interested to deal with the Bitcoin, understand that one. It was actually a bit the same story with Jeremias, what he has been saying. So they are interested kind of the big picture and not really maintain the human resources and stuff like that. That is one thing. And of course, it's also that when you have a pair of fresh eyes, of course, you get the different view of the company. So new person, it's easy to notice if they are kind of position that needs to be filled out. If they are kind of lacking something, if some people are stressed out because they have too much to do, if there are some people who don't have enough to do. So, of course, it's easier for somebody new to come and help that one. Sebastian, you recently started as CEO what were you doing before and how did you get into Bitcoin and come to local Bitcoins? Yeah, actually, I have a PhD in technology way back in the years. I was already interested in Bitcoin already 2012 or something. I was mining Bitcoin myself. But then I I got more interested after technical career to business side and I went for the business management and I founded a couple of companies and then I've been in the past three, four years in the management of different companies, also board members in different Finnish companies. But I have been following the Bitcoin and especially the local Bitcoins closely because local Bitcoins is the biggest Bitcoin company in Finland. That is, And of course, uh, early on, I was not as interested when it was in gray area, especially these companies. But now when the regulation is coming, finally, the companies are turning from the gray area to white area. So, of course, it's it's also easier for for me to as a business manager to come to these kind of companies who are going to be really official companies. And what else is there to say? I, I really think that the Bitcoin is, of course, itself is really interesting. It's really, it seems to be helping people around the world. And local Bitcoins itself is a really, really interesting company. It's, it's the, how would you say, missionary or settler of the, of the area. So it's really bringing kind of Bitcoin to those people who don't have access yet. And Mika, what about you? How did you come to work at local Bitcoins? 
Yeah, so I think I found Bitcoin's first time around year 2012 and in the beginning of, it was this on and off thing for me. I would spend some time studying it and then forgetting it for a while and so on. And uh, I did some mining. I traded a little, made a trading pot and that didn't work and got some altcoins and so on. Lost bitcoins to scammers and hackers and just by my own mistakes. So basic stuff, stuff, the normal mistakes and the process of learning Bitcoin and figuring out what it actually actually is by exper- by experimenting with it. Uh, but I, I think it was uh, in the beginning of 2015 that I, I like finally decided to get into Bitcoin and pursue a career in a in Bitcoin and I started by getting some ATMs and trying to find locations to them and it didn't go anywhere but I, I made some friends and quite soon after after that I ended up working for a local Bitcoin's own ATM project and uh, well that uh, that project uh, the company decided like uh, to concentrate uh, to to the main product and the ATM project uh, was was like shut down, but I, I I stayed around and started working and helping on the website and uh, coding and mostly maintaining our server and Bitcoin infrastructure is what I've been doing ever since. And actually, just to go back to earlier when we were kind of discussing the philosophical stance or the political stance, and you talked about how uh, they really wanted to do the peer-to-peer trades. And so why was it that they didn't think, oh, you know, why don't we just pull this liquidity and create kind of a more typical exchange? Like, what what's the reason for that? Yeah. So the mission, actually, it was pretty old one, this, that they bring Bitcoin to every city of the world. And of course, they, they really feel... Why they are in Bitcoin, at least, of course, this is my, my view, why they are for Bitcoin. They might have a different story. <laughs> so take a bit of soul hearing me saying what they wanted. But of course, the mission was early on to bring Bitcoin to every city of the world. And of course, if there is an exchange, like there are a lot of exchanges, it really makes sense because the price kind of sell and buy price is close to each other. Of course, the transaction costs are low. But then the problem is that there is usually only one way to buy it. You buy directly from the exchange and so on. And if you go in different areas, different markets, the problem is with financial inclusion. So we already mentioned, for example, that if you are Venezuelan or, well, actually I have to admit that, for example, for my parents, even in Finland, it might be a bit hard for them to kind of buy something from the stock exchanges, but then exchanging with the people to people, it's a lot easier. But especially if we go areas like Venezuela, it seems that it's easier for people to trade each other than to go with the stock markets. And it's probably due to the how the, not Bitcoin currency, but the other currency is involved. All right. So in a moment, we're going to discuss 
some other kind of news issues with local Bitcoin, such as stopping services in Iran and some of the changes to its platform. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the privacy-enhanced compliance initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you'll find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Today's episode is brought to you by SimbaChain. Do you have a blockchain idea that could benefit your organization, but are you not sure where to begin? Then go to SimbaChain.com. SimbaChain's API-based approach simplifies blockchain for developers and provides a simple web application that empowers business analysts, domain experts, managers, and executives to design their smart contracts. SimbaChain supports Ethereum, Quorum, Stellar, and many more to come. They turn business analysts into API designers and non-blockchain developers into blockchain developers. Check out SimbaChain.com to quickly build your blockchain application. Back to my conversation with Sebastian Sontag and Mika Impala. So we were just talking about kind of why uh, the founders wanted to do peer-to-peer exchanges. And I just also wondered, do you know from the user's perspective, like the buyers and the sellers, why they choose to do trades this way rather than on an exchange? Yeah, uh, don't really know the reason. I don't know if you have done studies on the reason and probably it differs from the market and from people to people. And to be honest, I don't know if it's our place to really ask people. Of course, if we want to develop the service forward, of course, we have to bit understand better why and how the service is being used. But we have not really studied that too well. And of course, when mentioned that the background with the founders of the company and why they had this trade system is that the, it was really early on when they found it. They were really kind of really early adopters with Bitcoin and with the company. So, of course, during that time, there were no exchanges and they find their position with this peer-to-peer trading. And, of course, because there are and there are a lot of competition between Bitcoin exchanges, it doesn't really make sense to try to turn local Bitcoins yet another exchange. 
And back in May, I had Vera Xavier, local Bitcoins community manager, and Elena Tonoya, chief customer success officer, on my other podcast, Unconfirmed. And at that time, they told me they were seeing about forty to 50,000 trades a day and about maybe a half million active users every month. What are the usage numbers now? Yeah, they, they have been stayed, stayed pretty much the same. I mean, like I earlier said, that that seems like we grow grow with the Bitcoin. So uh, I, I think the Bitcoin price has also stayed pretty much the same. Yeah, same. So that's why the growth growth of the uh, of the users is not that much from from the May. Yeah. Also, it's a short period of time. And what's the breakdown between developed and developing countries? Yeah, it seems. Uh... When we were checking that the, what currencies people are using for the kind of when they are trading the money, uh, we have noticed that uh, it might be a bit more users in developing countries than in the. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And and when you say that, are you are you talking about number of transactions as opposed to the amount of the transactions? Or just number of users? Uh, I was actually, yeah, it's, it's a volume, so not number, but really kind of how many Bitcoins is exchanged. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's actually pretty remarkable because then, you know, you would expect that in developing countries, the amount of Bitcoin is higher per capita simply because they're probably wealthier countries. But if in the developing countries, they're kind of exceeding the amount you know, not not just from a number of transactions perspective, but from the BTC amount, then that means that there's pretty significant trading on your platform in developing countries. Yeah. And I would guess that the one reason is due to these exchanges, because of course, it's possible and it's easy for to use them in the developed countries. But of course, if you are in developing country, it's a bit bit more hard to use uh, uh, exchange. That might be one reason. Right, right. Also, I would like to make a point, maybe to the earlier question, or, or also that is related to this, why we have a, have a user so much in the developing countries, is that uh, my, I imagine that uh, in developing countries, you don't necessarily have, for example, a bank account, so to speak, but you have maybe some some uh, mobile payment method like MPSA or or something like that that you use use on your phone phone and and uh, there isn't really exchanges providing like on and off ramps from that uh, mobile payment method. Uh, so if you want to get out of that, mo- mo- uh, if you want to get uh, bitcoins, you would ha- have to have that bank account that you don't have. So you need to use us because we, uh, through us, you can find someone who is using the same mobile payment method and, and thus you have uh, like like this direct ro- route to transfer your your value from, from that mobile payment method directly to bitcoins and and wherever you want to go from there. So, yeah, yeah, it's. I guess what uh, is probably very appealing about local bitcoins is that it's pretty. <laughs> I don't want to say customizable to your <laughs> local 
geography, but what I mean is it's very flexible. So, you know, if you're in one country and you have this particular way where you keep your money, then the, you know, instead of being limited to whatever few payout options and exchange offers, you can just keep browsing, you know, this kind of Craigslist site to find somebody else who will accept your payment option. One other thing I definitely want to urge the listeners to do is in the show notes, I'll put a link to the charts of local Bitcoins trading broken out by country because when I looked at this, I just, it was so fascinating. There are certain trends that you see, and then there's just like certain outliers where you know whatever was going on with trading in that country was just particular to what was going on in that country. And what I mean by that is that the charts basically show trading volume, you know, by country over time. And so there are, there are a few trends I noticed where, um, these tend to be stable economies and um, the, essentially the, the trading was all fairly low volume for quite a long time. And then a spike in trading at the end of 2017, early 2018, and then a drop back down to fairly low levels kind of. And, and the uh, for people who want to look this up, like Switzerland, Norway, New Zealand, they all kind of exhibited that sort of chart. And then there was another type of pattern I noticed amongst somewhat kind of probably, I guess, what you would call troubled economies, where um, the volume just sort of somewhat steadily goes up. Like, for instance, Argentina, Mexico, Venezuela. Um, but then, you know, aside from those trends, there are just a whole bunch of charts that really don't look like any of the others. And um, that it was just really fascinating to see that. So there's no question to this, uh, unless you guys have a comment on on that. But I was so fascinated when I was looking at these charts. Oh, and actually, the one other comment I wanted to make was that the U.S. has um, a very, very fascinating chart because it just shows so much more trading than any of the other charts, um, which, you know, I guess kind of reflects that the U.S. is the biggest market, uh, at least for peer-to-peer trading of Bitcoin. But um Anyway, do you guys have any comments about about these charts? Well, well yeah, I, I also en- encourage people to go and look those charts and, and maybe uh, like once a week go and see the, w- what's happening there because you can actually get this feeling that you, you saw this little spike in some of the charts and then you start, start wondering uh, what, what is going on in, in this country and and you Google and then you find out. It's like uh, you can little bit predict predict the news news from those charts. Do you, do you remember any particular news events? You know that you noticed uh, via looking at the chart. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I actually mean, noticed that. Uh, of course, I was already interested in local bitcoins, and we already had these interviews on going and so on, but there was this Venezuela, and of course, there were a lot and a lot of news ongoing about the Venezuela, and in the same time, I could see from the coin dance that, hey, there is more and more transaction ongoing in Venezuela, so at least for me, this was a really astonishing moment, kind of that uh, it can really help people in that area. But I have a question about the Venezuela one, which I saw... Uh, the New York Times reporter who covers crypto tweeted about this because since the chart is denominated in Venezuelan bolivares, then 
obviously the value of that is decreasing. Mm-hmm. So is, is it, does the chart reflect actual increase in trading volume or is it simply reflecting that it takes more bolivares to buy a Bitcoin than it used to? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, uh, but, but uh, if we if we are still talking about the coin dance service, uh, you can actually switch the the nomination to BTC from the right upper corner of the of the chart. So then it's of course gets a little bit difficult. Then you need to <laughs> remember what was the price price of the Bitcoin back uh, back then and so on. Uh, but we do we do provide a, a public uh, coin dance is using our public API to create these charts. So if there are are some uh, ways to improve them, you are welcome to try try out uh, and get the data for for yourself and and try to figure out how to present it more uh, nicely. Yeah. Hey, one thing about this, of course, it's also really interesting what we have been following is that the, how the Bitcoin itself behaves nowadays, turbulence on the world markets. And it's really interesting. Of course, there's also news, news from the big uh, economic magazines as well that it's interesting that the Bitcoin has started to act a bit like the gold or kind of this kind of metal that keeps the price. And it's really interesting because we have on the history 2017 and even before learned that the Bitcoin is really volatile and whatever. And now it starts to work a bit more like a gold, which is probably not the most volatile asset you can get. Wait, I'm sorry, you're talking about gold? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that um, is probably the reason why, for example, in Venezuela, so if you kind of want to retain the value of whatever, for example, salary you are getting. And it might be, I, I don't really, because that is the problem that we don't really do studies that the why Venezuelans are using, but it's just my hunch that it might be a reason that it's because there's a hyperinflation. So you need some way to kind of retain the value of your salary and so on. And Bitcoin might be an easy way to do that. Yeah, I remember, I think it was Vera in the last podcast I did, she was saying that some of the activity you're seeing from Venezuela is Venezuelans trading bolivares uh, into USD via Bitcoin. And then when they need it, when they need the money using Bitcoin to trade it back to bolivares. And actually what I did just now, I just looked up the BTC volume of trading in Venezuela. And it did spike quite high earlier this year in like March, roughly, it looks like, or maybe February. Uh, But it's back down now, frankly, actually. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder what's going on there. Oh, Oh, I know. It's because the Bitcoin price has gone up. Duh. Okay. Okay. So actually, let's... uh move on uh, to some other kind of changes that have been going on in your business. You know, local Bitcoins obviously stopped offering services in Iran as well, which I I mean, I don't know, you know, to my mind, and I think a lot of 
people who watch the crypto space, it sort of feels like there's kind of been a lot of changes at local Bitcoins recently with stopping cash services now, stopping services in Iran, you know, bringing in this new CEO. So um, what what happened with the Iran service and how does that kind of fit into whatever new trajectory local Bitcoins is on? Yeah, about the, well, the CEO process didn't really reflect this, but a lot of these changes that has happened is there is a push from the regulation. Of course, finally, oh, well, finally, but anyway, the governments are seeing a Bitcoin and of course they are acting, they are pushing a regulation and so on. And for example, Iran, we are using a lot of U.S. services for different purposes. And now because the Iran is on the list, they were companies, U.S. companies who, who we are buying services, they were stating that we cannot continue doing business if we do business in Iran. And even though, of course, we didn't use these services in Iran, but only that we were giving a service in Iran was enough for them to be afraid. And of course, now we had to choose between two evils. If we continue supporting, for example, Iran, or there is a possibility that we have to shut down, shut down the whole service. And of course, if our mission is to uh, bring Bitcoin to every city of the world, putting Iran down is not really serving that uh, mission. But if we have to turn the whole service down, that is even worse scenario. So we had to choose between two evils. And of course, the regulation is happening and also we will, we are regulated and we will go under the regulation. Yeah. And it's a new Finnish regulation that comes into effect in November, right? Yeah. And I know on the platform, you're now implementing some changes to meet that regulation. How does that affect the users? Yeah, so most notably they are this know your customer. And that's why there are there will be tiers. We have already announced that there will be tiers and of course depending that the uh, tier you have to we have to know a bit more about the customer. Of course one could argue it's only because of the regulation, but then again if you read the ruling or the reasoning behind this regulation is that the better the companies know the customer, better they are able to secure the funds. So it kind of, kind of makes sense also customer wise, but of course it's really annoyance for the customers. And the history of crypto obviously is littered with exchange hacks. Local Bitcoins is a little bit different, but Local Bitcoins did suffer a hack on its forums that enabled the hackers to post some phishing links. But when you, because you, you know, manage these wallets for people, is that also a form of honeypot? Is that something where a hacker could obtain a number of Bitcoins at once? Yes. So, so if you are, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to go into details about the forum forum thing. Uh, just saying that uh, I think uh, running a Bitcoin business is a little bit different than running any other other uh, web service, as there is uh, money involved involved, and 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 thus we we seem to be 
under constant <laughs> attacks from hackers. So it's been it, it, it's been well, how to say, interesting in in a, in a way, and also very stressful as being a target, so to say. And yes, we we are we are a custodial service. Uh, we held some of the bitcoins of our customers and uh, unfortunate uh, unfortunately that's how how we need to operate to operate this way and and we but we are let's say taking really big measures to to make sure that our customers funds are safe so i guess what i'm asking is it sounds like obviously there's a way where individual people can be compromised but then it sounds like, from what you're saying, there is also a way where local Bitcoins can be compromised and that then exposes all of the users' funds. Is that correct? Yes, you are correct that the that, uh, uh, easiest way to to get hacked on local Bitcoins is, is by, by making mistake on your yourself like as a user and, and and most of the hackers seems to like target the users themselves more more than the actual service and and to to fight that we of course educate our users and 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 uh, we i think we have many 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 uh system in place to to like catch catch those kind of uh operators and trying to protect our customers, but like any other exchange, we are we are uh, also holding customer funds and and thus uh, well, yeah. And so you're doing that not only during the period of escrow, but then also if people keep their bitcoins in their local bitcoins wallet, is that what you're saying? Yes. Oh, okay. So I think I didn't fully understand how it was set up. All right. So one other question I wanted to ask about was for the Bitcoin cash fork, at that time, local Bitcoins made this decision to convert that money into Bitcoins for for the users. And then they simply added it, added that money to the user's balance and subtracted a, a little fee for doing that. But then it, it also said it would, it would not in the future support any airdrops or forks. So Obviously, <laughs> since that time, there's definitely been other forks and um, airdrops. <laughs> uh, I don't even know if I could count. Um, but if local Bitcoins isn't giving that money to its users, are you guys just leaving it sitting there unused? Or are you accessing it? Or what are you doing with that money? <sighs> uh, no, we are not using it. Uh, but uh, I mean... Uh. Yeah, by the way, about these folks, of course, sorry being a CEO here, what folks there have been actually since the Bitcoin cash? Oh, um, oh, sorry. You know what I was thinking of was the, um, the further Bitcoin cash fork. So you're right. If it was converted, then that's no longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, but I was yeah. thinking of. Yeah, Bitcoin because it was, yeah, because Bitcoin cash was, uh, if I, Understood correctly, it was uh, exchanged to Bitcoin for the users. Exactly, right, yeah. right, right. But so what? So what happens to, you know, for instance, like Bitcoin Gold or something, which happened afterward? 
Well, uh, I, I think we have made it clear that we don't, uh, we don't, this was a one-time thing that we decided to like credit the users for, for, for the money from the fork and, and we don't plan on doing it in the future and we haven't done it after that. And it's, yeah, I think there's no more to say about it. Okay, but you're also not accessing the funds, so they're just sort of sitting there. Yeah, we are not accessing the funds. It's easy to check if you don't believe me, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, and people can't uh, withdraw them themselves, I guess. Uh, so will local P- Bitcoins just always stay with Bitcoin, or would you ever consider adding any of the other crypto assets? Yeah, if I now recall correctly, we are supporting some what is the payment method we are actually supporting? Of course, not with escrow, but as a payment method, we are supporting something. But uh, the stance is at the moment that the Bitcoin is the leading the cryptocurrency back. And that's why we are also using it. Because, of course, supporting other cryptocurrency is a cost for us. And our mission is being these new markets, which is they are probably not speculating on cryptos as much they are using it for other purposes. So at least the current stance is that we stay with Bitcoin. And Sebastian, as the new CEO, what plans do you have for local Bitcoins? Yeah, so of course, uh, because our mission is to uh, provide Bitcoins trading for every city of the world, every people on the planet. And like we have actually stated, this has been actually a really interesting interview because we have been discussing that uh, we really need to understand the needs of the people who are using Bitcoins. And it really varies on different markets. And of course, this is kind of studying what are the needs for different customers, different markets, different people for Bitcoins. And then we try to serve those so that the more people on the world can access and trade Bitcoins. All right. And I also wanted to ask about how you guys are based in Helsinki. What is the Bitcoin or overall crypto scene? What What is that like in Finland? Well, I could point out one thing that uh, seems uh, general people seems to forget uh, is that the second developer on Bitcoin after Satoshi or with Satoshi was was uh, guy using the handle Sirius, which is also known as Martti Malmi, who is from from Finland in Helsinki. Uh, Martti Malmi doesn't seem to be active in scene anymore, but as far as I know, he know he still owns the Bitcoin.org and BitcoinTalk.org domains. And as far as I know, I know there were. From 2012, 2013, there were active Bitcoin meetups in in Helsinki, and there are still active uh, once in a month. I think uh, we have a Bitcoin meetup here, so and there are people there. <laughs> so, uh, so we are a small country, and uh, but we've we've been in a Bitcoin for a long time. I think. And if you have been interested in Bitcoin, you can always find uh, someone to share your Bitcoin enthusiasm here in Finland. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Hey, thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about local Bitcoins, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, which is shorter and a bit newsier, be sure to check that out. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my email newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factual Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Rich Straffolino, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening.